Welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast, where three brothers from three different generations talk about their one shared passion, music. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis, and I'm here with my brother, Jeremy Sartori. It's a Brother, Brother podcast today. And today, we're celebrating Graham Parsons on the 45th anniversary of his death. You can now listen to episodes on our brand new Brother Pod app, which also gives you access to additional new music, music news, clips, and content that we curate for each episode. It's also a place where you can interact with us directly through the talkback feature, ask us questions, make suggestions, and voice your own opinions. Just search BrotherPod in the App Store to download on your mobile device. As always, you can learn more about the pod at BrotherPod.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook. And it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Now, let's look back at the life and career and music of Graham Parsons. I'm your host, Wendell Lewis. I'm here with my brother, Jeremy Sartori, and today we are talking about one of our favorite artists of all time, uh, the one and only Graham Parsons. Now, one of the things that always, uh, I guess, affected me about Graham Parsons, and one of the things I've, I've always loved most about Graham Parsons is the sort of depth of emotion in his voice, um, which he brought to uh, a number of projects in a very short span, but... As reading his history and, and finding out more about him, I mean, there's a reason, or there's some reasons behind uh, the sort of pained uh, tone in his voice, the, the the hurt and the injury that sort of comes across so clearly and so beautifully in, in so many of his songs. Um, Joe, you did a little poking around in, in the history of Graham Parsons. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, uh, Graham is a guy who, uh, you know, despite sort of always being known as, as sort of a privileged cosmic cowboy. Actually had a, a really dark and uh, lonely childhood. He was He's a Florida native. Which explains most of it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And uh, was the, uh, you know, birth name Cecil Connor um, III. And he was he was born, you know, into a, a family that was probably, you know, one of, in Winter Grove, Florida, which was an orange you know, orange capital at the time, probably still is, and they owned a lot of the, the orange groves, so they were sort of, uh, you know, heirs to the, the orange juice. I don't know what it became at some point, Tropicana or something, but they, they certainly owned a lot of land and had, you know, kind of a privileged upbringing. And that said, Mr. Parsons' uh, father committed suicide two days before Christmas when he was 12 years old. His mother, you know, remarried to a uh, gentleman with the last name Parsons, which he, he took on the surname for. And later, uh, obviously, changing his stage name to Graham Parsons. And mother also died of, of cirrhosis. And, uh, you know, obviously, for any child, that's a, you know, fun and, and loving <laughs> family household. Um, but what he did was he turned to music and, you know, really being influenced by Elvis initially and then kind of floating through some colleges and ended up in, you know, right here where Wyndham and I are sitting, uh, not too far from Cambridge, Massachusetts, and ended up in Harvard as yeah. an undergrad. Well, this is the kind of this is back in a time when if you own and th- what I heard estimated as a third of the orange groves in Florida, 
Um, there was an ability to sort of buy your way into a place like Harvard University, and, and thus and such, that happened. Yeah, there was a way to fail out of three universities and then end up at Harvard <laughs> back in the uh, 60s. Um, that may still happen, who knows? But, um, you know, I think the, the interesting thing was, you know, as you said, kind of the depth of emotion couldn't have been a very happy guy and then also sort of the family history of, of alcoholism and, and you know sort of abuse and drama definitely led to some to a short but uh, eventful musical life yeah um, so he gets to Harvard uh, his first uh, starts his first band which is the International Submarine Band which sort of lays the seeds for uh, his later I mean whatever extended career he had I mean, he literally died in, at uh, the age of 26 so um, it was a pretty brief uh, moment but he starts immediately starts uh, the International Submarine Band um, which does two things one sort of introduces his desire to meld uh, country with psychedelia a country traditional American country music which he was in love with and thought that it was shortchanged as old people music or has-been music and decides that he wants to bring it to a new audience, which is young uh, pot-smoking hippies. Yeah. And, um, you know, what better place to do that than Harvard Square in the 60s? And but, one note there, too, sorry to interrupt, but uh, what really kind of struck him was seeing Merle Haggard live, and he saw Merle Haggard live, and that I think he probably grew up around country music and country western and and probably gospel and soul living in the, well, whatever Florida is, I guess the South. It was the South. <laughs> and then, but uh, in addition to that, you know, Merle Haggard really had a huge effect on him, seeing him live. I, I mean, I've seen Merle Haggard live. You've seen Merle too. Haggard live. It, it has a good effect. If I could play guitar, I might uh, sing country music. Um, but so he starts the International Submarine Band. They, they have uh, very little to no sort of effect on the world, except for uh, he has basically a resume when he drops out of Harvard and, and heads up in to L.A. LA. Um, and, uh, the one thing again that, uh, you know, he brought with him, uh, to the International Submarine Band was, like I said, A, a melding of psychedelia and country music and B, uh, to my thinking, uh, a penchant for terrible band names. Yeah. <laughs> um, so. Which we'll get to. He strikes out to LA and, um, my understanding is that the birds were, Falling apart at this point, Roger McGuinn. Birds were uh, a phenomenal band, and and you know, I mean, if you, it's one of those bands that you think you know because you hear them um, on Did the radio. You, you hear the head turn on Forrest Gump soundtrack. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, dig deep into those records, and you find a lot of really great buried treasure. But the band, you know, was sort of a you know, a mis- you know, an accidental all-star team with Guy Clark. I mean, yeah, Guy Clark, um, David Crosby, David Crosby, Roger McGuinn, um, all of whom were singers and songwriters in their own right. So uh, Crosby and Clark and Michael Clark leave the band. They're in need of they're changing directions. They're kind of uh, Roger McGuinn wants to take them on the sort of. Uh, more roots oriented um, American music history kind of uh, uh, jag and so in, in, in actuality they were looking for a jazz pianist to join the band uh, somebody does play piano and guitar somebody who can play sort of honky tonk and you know even going all the way back to like ragtime and Parsons tries out as a pianist um, gets hired by the band as a as a backing vocalist and piano player and quickly switches over to guitar and kind of even at the age of 21 must have been a very charismatic figure because he sort of rests control 
um, little by little, uh, first uh, convincing, you know, sort of bonding with Chris Hillman over love of, of uh, bluegrass, and then um, convincing the, um, the band's manager and producer that, uh, you know, McGuinn's uh, McGuinn's vision is too broad to, to really yeah, Mc, nail down. McGuinn was looking to do a double album, basically the history of music yeah, in America, would, which would have been... I would have loved to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he wanted to go from, like, you know, jug band, <laughs> you know, field recording, field, yeah, to, um, you know, po- he wanted to actually do some synth mu- music at the end, which would have been really um, remarkable back in 1968. Instead... Parsons kind of rest control of the uh, of the focus of the next album and drives them towards Sweetheart of the Rodeo, which uh, at the time was a colossal failure and is now regarded as one of the great albums of all time. Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting. I mean, mind you, 1968 height of uh, you know psychedelic uh, summer of love era. The birds being one of the cornerstones of that movement in the Bay Area and you know really nationally in LA. Sorry, and, and nationally and. Uh, you know, all of a sudden they come out with a very, very traditional country, <laughs> country you know, I wouldn't even say country rock, I and mean, there's a little bit of rock in there, but it's there's a uh, very, it's a very country rock. album. Yeah, know? there's a, and it's interesting how it breaks down, because uh, the Birds historically had always done a lot of cover tunes, um, and specifically a lot of Dylan cover tunes, but on this one they chose a couple of relatively obscure Dylan cover tunes and kept them very country-oriented. They actually went to Nashville... Um, and at the time, I think thought that they were they were doing um, you know something revolutionary, which they were. They were going to Nashville to record a uh, an album as a rock and roll band um, to do country rock. But uh, turns out that nobody in LA wanted a country band, and nobody in Nashville wanted a bunch of long haired hippies coming in. So they actually wound up going Which to Nashville. Which becomes Nash- a theme for Grand Parsons, by the way. <laughs> yeah, beat it, hippie. Um, so they go to Nashville. They record Sweetheart of the Rodeo. They're roundly um, despised in Nashville for being long-haired hippies. I believe booed off the Grand Ole Opry. Booed off the stage at Grand Ole Opry. Head back to L.A. with an album tucked under their arm, <laughs> which everybody <laughs> hates. In a dust pile. <laughs> and um, voila. You've, yeah. got a, you've got a career under. Well, let's just quickly before we, we you know move on from some of the early years of the next formation. I mean, Sweetheart the Rodeo, I think you and I were talking last night when we were sort of, this is anniversary, obviously, of, of Parsons' death and, uh, you know, very short life. But one of the things that I think you and I both feel is that one of the biggest and most influential reissues is Sweetheart of the Rodeo by the Birds. And I want to say Rhino uh, Discs reissued that. Pro, very likely. Could be. Rico, Rhino, one yeah. of those. But um, it, it, it basically took the original album recordings and hewed them on to what was the original album. So um, there was a lot of cut down, a lot of argument about what the meat of this album should be. They wound up with a, I think, a nine song LP that is is great, but largely Roger McGuinn singing country tunes. And in all actuality, there were songs by other members of the band. Michael Clark contributed um, one. Graham Parsons. Graham Parsons contributed several, uh, three, I believe. And Graham Parsons sang lead on a lot of uh, alternate tracks. Yeah. And as you hear, as you are introduced to those alternate tracks, which we weren't until the late 90s, um, you understand why people were excited and then why they were felt shortchanged when the album actually came out. And you also see this as the, the sort of... Um the time right around the time in American indie music 
where bands like Uncle Tupelo, Jayhawks, um, you know, uh, Firewater, bands, the Bloodshot Records movement, you know, were really kind of turning to these albums and, and finding influence. So these were people that generally were from the Midwest or the Southeast and had a, uh, a background in country music or had grown up with it through their grandparents or parents. And but also had a sort of punk rock bent from being rebellious kids, and, and actually started to turn that upside down and say, you know, we really this music is is rock or this music is folk, it's and, the and shit. yeah, we're gonna we're gonna play it. So, you know, I think this album, you know, for being completely written off in the '60s um, and being completely time, you know, out of place, um, became a real sort of cornerstone for that um, movement. movement. Yeah, it's funny when I look back, we did our our very 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 first podcast 108 uh, episodes ago um we we defended our year and my year was 1968 and two of my albums were sweetheart of the rodeo and white light white heat and i think what people don't understand is that sweetheart of the rodeo did not outsell white light white heat by much (laughs) i mean we're talking in the tens of thousands of records after from a band who had number one hits across the country so let's take a quick break let's listen to one of those alternative uh uh, one of those outtakes from a Grant Parsons vocals, one of my favorite, 100 Years, which is his own song, and then we'll come back and we'll talk about uh, the later years of Grant Parsons' short and fruitful life. One, two, three, four, one. Welcome back to the Brother, Brother, Brother pod, and today it's Wyndham and I, and we're talking uh, the nudie suit, uh, long-haired, cowboy, hippie, Graham Parsons, who, um, you know, for us, and I think a lot of people our age and a lot of people who, who enjoy sort of just music in general or, or American music kind of look to as, as kind of an underground cornerstone, um, who probably, you know, really has gotten his due, uh, you know, as of late, but didn't, did not get his due at the time. Um, and, you know, we just talked about his, his stint with the birds. Post the birds, um, Graham, well, first of all, Graham Parsons was never officially in the birds. He was sort of a contract musician. So he didn't, he didn't have the contract. He didn't get paid on, on you know, as handsomely as, as the other members. And really, Chris Hillman at that time and I think Roger McGuinn were the only true members um, on contract anymore. But Hillman and, and Parsons formed a, a really strong friendship and relationship um, and, you know, be, broke off and started a, uh, his second, you know, maybe probably second worst band name, yeah. the Flying Burrito Brothers. His second best band. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, in, in the se- early 70s, so 1970 to be uh, exact. And now, you know, at this time, there was definitely a, a buzz. I think Wyndham mentioned that, you know, Grant Parsons obviously had a lot of charisma to sway, you know, one of the top bands in, in, you know, the U.S. to do a full-on country album. Obviously, him and Chris Hillman were good buddies, and Chris Hillman, having been, been in the birds, had some sway with A&R and, and record companies as well. And there was actually a lot of uh, a lot of backing put, to, put behind the Flying Burrito Brothers, who, 
to me, you know, have kind of what would become sort of that 70s, uh, you know, kind of Americana, country it, rock, of the, the Eagles of the, you know. It's the bedrock of, of what was 70s, and there was a huge country turn in the 70s, and there were a lot of country hits. And there was also Southern rock that happened at the same yeah. time, which sort of, uh, you know, is a, um, not necessarily an offshoot, but certainly a, a cousin of, um, I mean, but, you know, people, you think of Even the like Eagles. Todd Rogren, I feel like, had influence from that. I mean, some of the songs, uh, Burrito Deluxe being the debut mm-hmm. album, which, again, had a lot of, like, A&R backing, a lot of record label backing. It was another complete flop, by the way. <laughs> but, um, but was an album that, you know, if you... It, if you go back and listen to those tracks, you know, Hot Burrito, number one, <laughs> number two, and, uh, you know, Dark Side of the Road, it's, those are, I mean, those are all songs that are really a blueprint for, I would say, like, 75 on, even. Well, even, uh, yeah, I mean, the Eagles, at the, the Eagles at this point, Jackson Brown, the Eagles are, Linda Ronstadt's back yeah. in band, um, they split off and start their own thing, um, I think really encouraged by this, uh, you know, um, you know, by seeing other people embracing country and country rock, but then you get the options like Poco and Firefall mm-hmm. and all these like '70s bands that, you know, sort of melded some form, even America or you know, where you you know you have a little bit of mandolin, a little bit of banjo, and a little bit of you know, fucking jazz flute. Mama plays. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, it, it's all you know. It all sort of you know, look back, was backward looking toward the Godfather, Brito Brothers. <laughs> stick around for what two they have years? two albums yeah, yeah so 70 71 at this time too you know uh, i think parsons demons were sort of catching up with him he uh he definitely uh had a pretty heavy drug habit throughout and it got to the point where they were going to do a, a european tour and they ended up um booking some dates in south africa and parsons claimed that he had a uh, real uh you know, misgiving. problem misgiving with the apartheid, which is very honorable. Except for he also had uh, hooked up with Mick Jagger and Keith Richards, one of his idols. And uh, I'm going to say he might have wanted to stay around and party with Keith. Or the, the the various stories, Rashomon-like stories that I've heard. Um, it's it sort of uh, it was an either or proposition: go on tour in South Africa or hang out and do smack and um, chill with. Uh, uh, Keith Richards Play, while he teacher, does teacher buddy yeah, country songs in, in a chateau in France and and um, and I know. should back up a little bit they were friends so Graham had befriended Keith and Mick and uh, Flying Brew Brothers were one of the bands of the famous Altamont concert and Graham sort of used his relationship to to you know um, gain kind of access to the Stones and I don't mean that in kind of a, a manipulative way but the Flying Burrito Brothers at the time were literally playing lounges in Los Angeles while people like Linda Ronstadt and all, the, all these other people were sort of blowing up um, but his friendship with Keith you know uh, he, they were able to, open, yeah, able to open for the Stones on, on, on a few dates and certainly gave them uh, you know, some recognition and exposure. That lay, leads, of course, to the uh, you know, age-old controversy, if it is a controversy, of um, who wrote Wild Horses. Yeah. Well, you know, Keith claims that it was influenced by Graham, you know, I might think it. Almost might. everybody who <laughs> knows and loves Graham Parsons thinks that Graham Parsons wrote it and gave it to Keith gave Richards to as a gift. Um, that aside, I don't Damn, know. that song would have been a hit. <laughs> yeah. Although, you know, it, it is, it's extreme. You know, you hear the Graham Parsons version of it, and mm-hmm. you realize that it's a better Doug, Graham yeah. Parsons tune than it is a, a Stones tune. It feels a little... The Stones feel like they're place. doing, yeah, doing the country. Um, but anyway, so we go, we move on from the Brito Brothers. The Brito Brothers break up due to... Uh, Chris Hillman, yeah, just Parsons not 
leaving, basically going to, uh, you know, do drugs with Keith Richards and Chris Hillman being like, out of, you know, kicking him out basically. So they, they ended up with a new singer. I think they put out one album post they that. Did. Yeah, without Graham Parsons. And Graham Parsons moves back to LA, um, you know, with I think a very, very, uh, strong uh, drug habit and meets uh, the one and only very young Emmylou Harris. Yeah, a very young Graham Parsons meets a very young Emmylou Harris. And again, as the rumors swirl, uh, you know, that whether or not they were involved is, is a different story. There's a strong emotional attachment, I would yeah, say. Yeah, but a perfect musical marriage. Amazing, yeah. I mean, I mean Tammy Terrell and Marvin Gaye, kind of, you know, that level of, of excellence. And you can really hear it in songs, um, you know, on the uh, now... Uh, so he, uh, Emmylou Harris and Grandparents become musical partners, Um she is, I mean, and I mean this in the most uh, sincerely flattering way, the Garfunkel to his Simon. Absolutely. Um, and they put out, or he puts out GP. Yep. Um, which I would actually prefer to think of as they put out GP. Yeah. She deserves uh, full No, credit. it's definitely, I mean, Graham Parsons has a voice that definitely, you know, you can feel emotion through. And Emmylou Harris is one of the most, you know, a, you know, probably top five harmonizers in all of music, um, and still today is, is doing her own stuff, obviously, and, and, and singing with others. And GP is really, you know, a, a country album um, melded with some gospel and, and some soul. American cosmic music is a what, lot of covers. Yeah, what Grant Parsons like to call it, and uh, he would not allow it to be sort of um, categorized as a country album. So again, he's sort of falling in between multiple genres this is a guy that that you know looks like a cowboy hippie is a hippie you know for all extensive purposes from la playing traditional country covers with you know a beautiful young emmy lou harris singing you know like an angel and uh and this album is actually critically acclaimed at the time but a complete commercial flop again so yeah there's a there's a there's a trend here um <laughs> commercial flop commercial flop commercial flop um, this guy is an absolute career killer, yeah. uh, all, and yet he manages to uh, to live on to this day. But GP, uh, a lot of you know, more hearkening back um, to he. I think he's getting his legs under him as a solo artist. A lot of hearkening back to traditional songs. I mean, songs like "The Streets of Baltimore." Um, we'll put out the ashes. Uh, um, I mean, God, he's even got a cover. He's got a Jay Giles cover on here. Um, Does he? Yeah, yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, there's some tenderness. She is a great song in that mm-hmm. album. New Soft Shoe is mm-hmm. another one. Um, but the, the thing about Parsons as a, as a, a, a fan and a, um, a, a payer of homage, if I may coin an unnecessarily new phrase, um, he could not really make out the traditional songs from his more current songwriting. I mean, songs like Brass Buttons, and which was originally due to be on Sweetheart of the Rodeo, shows up here in homage to his mother. Um, you know, that, or Hickory Wind, or, you know, all these songs that, um, they really don't sound wildly different than the Leuven Brothers covers that he's doing, right. and, and the, you know, Flat and Scruggs covers. And, and so it's, it's strange how how much of a, a mimic he really is for somebody who I consider to be a very original voice. Yeah, and at the same time, 
there's a, I mean, it, it's not a modern sound, but he sort of modernized it in a way and made it accessible in a way that um, I think a lot of people, and we'll talk about how these albums were packaged later and things like that, but, you know, at this point, too, post-GP being a complete failure, um, you know, Grant Parsons is, is, I think, pretty down and, and turned into oh, yeah. his friend, uh, Mr., uh, you know, Heroin, and, and, you know, by all accounts was a really bad drug addict at this point and, and sort of pieced together. So GP came out in 73, um, does it? And then Grievous Angel came out post, actually. So his second album he records, and which is a, a masterpiece on its own with more original material... At the same time, you know, he had been touring regularly, getting completely shit on by the country scene, you know, and, you know, there was a real divide back then, and I mean, there probably still is. If I may make an aside, there, there is one uh, moment I recall in my own, you know, life, which obviously this is, uh, this is Graham Parsons' story, but uh, the thing that brought it into the most stark contrast to me is a visit to the Country Music Hall of Fame in Nashville, and I'm walking through the Country Music Hall of Fame with a couple friends. Everything is, you know, cars and Christianity and, and you know, outfits and rhinestones and, and you know. And, you know, if you, if you know anything about country music, you know these people are ten times more uh, depraved than any rock star ever. Um, any story you know about Led Zeppelin was times seven George Jones or Hank Williams and... You know, a lot of a lot of early death and a lot of drug addiction and a lot of abuse and a lot of shit goes down. A lot of knife fights. Um, I get to the portion of uh, there's like a hall of outfits or a hall of costumes in in the Country Music Hall of Fame, and I come upon Graham Parsons' nudie suit. Nudie being the company that made the uh, very decorative sort of cowboy outfits for country music stars. I come upon Grand Parsons' nudie suit, which from about 15 feet looks completely normal. And then you realize that it's completely adorned with pot leaves, syringes, pills, pills, <laughs> pills and uh, joints. Um, and but it, but ostensibly from the stage, it would look normal. It would look yeah. like the same sort of flowers and and um, you know roses Intricate. and horses yeah, exactly. and everything Horses. that that a that a George Jones style nudie suit had. But it's it's uh, you know it's all quaaludes and and. Uh, <laughs> And and heroin, so it, which it, was a weird sort of you know in your face thing, but I think like you know Willie Nelson ended up kind of successfully doing, and and Graham Parsons didn't, you know I think he just had a real desire to look at this type of music as as music and as really good music as opposed and, to culture. Yeah, exactly. But I think his look and his aesthetic and his probably you know yeah, and he always Graham Parsons was always because he was. A heir to the the orange juice uh, fortune. <laughs> fortune, you know, he he was a trust fund kid, right? So he had income always, which obviously probably did not help his drug habit because he was never broke. So at a time when a lot of musicians were scrapping around and and you know playing clubs and and doing it the hard way, not saying Grant Parsons didn't do it the hard way, but he certainly had money. Yeah, and uh, you know, and lent to that. But you know, a lot of actual country folks at the time. Um, one DJ in particular, uh, you know, really went after him as being this, you know, giant poser and get out of our scene and, you know, you know. As detailed in Return of the Grievous Angel. This is his uh, second album. And his, I think, a masterpiece of a song. I mean, I love this album so much. And, uh, you know, for most people of a certain age, um, you know, these albums were packaged together as a, as a single CD. So GP and Return of the Grievous Angel, um, 
basically are the same album to a lot of people. Yeah, they're very yeah. You know, I mean, and frankly, they were recorded in such rapid succession that they do feel like uh, one does feel like the sequel to the other. Yeah. But I do think Return of the Grievous Angel is a step, a, a major step further into the sort of country rock realm, and probably contains. Um, not what's regarded as the greatest Grand Parsons, but what my favorite Grand Parsons song, which is Thousand Dollar Wedding, which I think um, is the pinnacle of he and Emmy Lou's uh, musical alchemy, because I think I've yeah, never heard harmony like that. And, uh, and also kind of, again, on, on Grievous Angel, you're getting a little bit more of a blend of rock. rock and country. I mean, it would have been amazing to see what he did next. Um, unfortunately, that didn't happen. But even Return of the Grievous Angel as an opening track... You know, I was actually uh, down in Virginia with our sister recently, and and, uh, her partner is a big country music fan, and I had a mix going, and she was like, oh, you turned me on to this guy. You know, this is a guy that people like Wyndham and I, who hail from the Northeast, fell in love with off this double album, um, or this merged album, GP and Grievous Angel, Um, and then people in the South, you know, were able to kind of rediscover too. And I would say at at a time, as we were talking earlier about sort of the the late 90s, early 2000s kind of roots movement that came about through indie rock and sort of a rediscovery of, you know, quote-unquote classic country or outlaw country, um, Graham Parsons was a huge influence. And this this was also, you know, like bands like Big Star, where today you can Spotify all these guys, you hear the name, mm-hmm. you, can, you can look it up. They People found these records and were like, whoa, this is different. And it was always it was sort of a hidden treasure. Like, this is a guy in a nudie suit with pills and, and syringes and, uh, you know, doing really traditional music. Yeah, I'd say Graham Parsons is the godfather of the Americana movement in the same way that Iggy Pop is the godfather of punk. Definitely. And I, and one last thing I wanted to say, if you, if you were, you know, there's always an interesting story to be divined from liner notes, but, um, on the final track of, uh, Return of the Grievous Angel, uh, which is the sort of fake live, uh, cash on the barrelhead, um, Hickory Wind, uh, the backing vocals on those are done by one Stevie Nicks, Linda Ronstadt, and Nicolette Larson, I believe, um, the L.A. at the time, yeah, you know, the, mighty. The cool ladies that were yeah. about to break out in uh, in such a major way. So there, there was a, there was a, uh, you know, this was a congregation of, of major talent, but also, a, you know, L.A. was a much smaller town then, and this was a much smaller scene. Laurel so. Canyon. And I think, you know, unfortunately, Grant Parsons, who was as talented, as influential as any of those folks, uh, you know, succumbed to his, his demons and his trust fund yeah. and died actually before that album came out and then in 1973 um, passed. Let's take a quick listen to Return of the Grievous Angel and then we'll come back and just do a, a short, uh, punchy version of Grand Parsons' death because awesome. it is a story. <laughs> Want to scratch my head, sweet Annie Rich, and welcome me back to town? Come out on your porch or step into your parlor and I'll tell you how it all went down. Out with the truckers and the kickers and the cowboy angels and a good saloon in every single town. Oh, and I remembered something you once told me. And I'll be damned if it did not come true. Twenty thousand roads I went down, down, 
Welcome back to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Uh, we have talked the life of Graham Parsons today on uh, what will be the 45th anniversary of his death. And I'm, I'm going to throw one before we go into his death, just one little side story myself of my intro to Graham Parsons. And I, I had moved to Texas in the late 90s. I had uh, not knowing the geography very well or, or rarely looking at a map. I'd had Wyndham fly down to uh, <laughs> from New York City to, to have a fun weekend in Texas. And uh, Dallas was cheaper than... Uh, than Austin at the time to fly into, and I didn't realize it was four hours away, but, um, you know, so wind flies in, and I bring an, an old friend of mine, you know, my roommate at the time, who was a Texan, and, you know, kind of a, a hippie guy, and we're driving up, and we pick up Wyndham in Dallas, Wyndham who's made a mixtape for for me of all country music, and, uh, you know, actually my introduction to Grand Parsons, but the side note of the story is very Texas in the sense that my friend, who was, you know, pretty alternative lifestyle hippie guy, um, father was a Dallas or, you know, outside Dallas police officer cop and uh, very country. And we stopped in just to, you know, grab a quick bite before we headed back four hours back to Austin. Ended up being an eight-hour drive total. And, uh, you know, the parents were like, uh, you guys want a you know, quick drink or something? We're like, sure. And they made us the biggest big gulps of road soda cocktails <laughs> ever. So thank you, Dallas police. And, you know, we listened and sang along and rewound uh, that mixtape, you know, the entire drive, the this entire is, weekend. This is when I realized that people from Texas, people from the southeast and, and down south in uh, my naivete were, you know, Waylon and Willie and... Uh, you know, Steve Earle and the like are their Stones, Beatles, or they sit right along oh, Stones and Beatles. Yeah. I mean, you play any song down there, and everybody knows the words. It's it's a different country. Um, and, a, and yeah, the, and we talked about that a little bit in our country episode. I mean, I have friends who just were shocked that I never knew Waylon Jennings dreaming my dreams like I knew Rolling Stones Let It Bleed. You yeah, know, because it was what they grew up with, but. As Graham Parsons dies, unfortunately, from a heroin overdose, there was a little bit of family drama um, based on the fact that I think his stepfather would have gotten his inheritance. If he uh, his stepfather, I mean, there's, there's, certain, there's different accounts of this. One is uh, the, the main thread that goes through this is that, um, yeah, the, uh, one of the theories is that the, the stepfather, um, by Louisiana law, where he then lived, Robert Parsons, um, would have inherited his money if Graham was a Louisiana resident. I don't know if that's true. It could be mythology, like a lot of things around him. Um, one thing I know is that by the, by the end of any donkey's life, they're a fucking pain in the ass. And, um, and uh, Parsons, as much as uh, he's mythologized, uh, sounds like an absolute nightmare by the end of his run. Um, with he, a few, you know, they always have a few uh, evil friends hanging around. Yeah. And I don't know if Phil Kaufman was evil, but he was certainly a loyal friend. So... Uh, in their inebriated state, Graham Parsons at one point says, I would, you know, when I die, um, not knowing how, how soon that would be, I would like to be burned at Joshua Tree and have my ashes spread at uh, Cap Rock. And Sounds picturesque. Yeah. I mean, it sounds very dreamy and, and you know, what you say when you're high. <laughs> and uh, so Graham Parsons dies of a heroin overdose and his uh, stepfather, uh, you know, makes arrangements to fly the body back to Metairie, Louisiana. And... Yeah, and uh, Phil Kaufman, who was his uh, roadie or manager, and a few buds decide, like, you know, that's not going to happen. And so why don't we 
rent a hearse and steal the body. So Graham Parsons' body was actually uh, body napped by his uh, his manager and, and a couple other buddies, driven out to Joshua Tree. Stolen from LAX. Stolen from LAX. Which is not yeah. as easy as it used no. to be. Yeah. Close yeah. to <laughs> Yeah, so they drive in LAX, steal the body in a hearse, um, and get it out to Joshua Tree. And, you know, being, I think, pretty, this being a well-thought-out plan, decide to pour five gallons of gasoline on a, a large wooden casket, which... Uh, instead of a picturesque burning of a body, turns into a giant fireball. <laughs> Basically, they explode the body rather than burning it. Um, not exact. Not, not the... Uh, Particles of nudie suit flying everywhere, I believe. And, yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I hate to laugh at, at the, the sort of grisliness of this whole episode, but it is... Uh, it, it is absurd enough to be funny. <laughs> yeah. So what's left of the body is then flown back to... Well, first, there's a police chase, I believe. Oh, yeah. And uh, the police are, are, you know, because these guys were sober, what was no, the, the, the police were deemed too sober too, yeah. to, uh, to catch up to the police chase. <laughs> Which is excellent. Um, and because there's really, at the time, no law for body napping, they were charged a $750 fee for leaving a burn mark in Joshua Tree. <laughs> yeah. Which, uh, we probably shouldn't laugh, but we are. It's, a, it's an absurd enough story that it, it, it merits... Uh, laughter. Uh, these, the sad part is, um, you know, Graham Parsons left us at 26 with a with a very, um, you know, strong future ahead of him, and and uh, limited but really rich uh, catalog too. I mean, one of the few they can go back and say that uh, you know one of I guess the the I hate to say pluses of someone leaving such a short catalog is there really isn't that, there isn't a mess. Yeah. So you know, every song's a winner, and um, you know the legacy again lives on. We we talked about. Everything from the Eagles and Poco and Firefall and and every guy who's drummed a guitar in the seventies, you know, yeah, Tim Hart, Jackson Brown, and, you know, all these guys to uh, you know to um, you know later on, Sunvolt, Wilco, Uncle Tupelo, Jayhawks, everybody, Richard Buckner. I mean, uh, Ryan Adams, huge yeah. influence. So <clears throat> you know, rest in peace, Graham Parsons. We're glad we found you, and uh, we definitely recommend any of you who have not delve deep uh to to take a listen and also you know i think sometimes people will go back and listen now because you have so much access to kind of some of those classic country albums and see it as a little bit of country light maybe but uh put it in context it's it's a really cool sound from a daring uh, maneuver at that point definitely from a guy that was you know part of the counterculture really all right we'll take a quick break and we'll come back we'll end this how we end every episode Walking down Main Street Getting to know the concrete Looking for a purpose From a neon sign I would meet you anywhere Western sun meets the air We'll hit the road Never looking behind Nothing greater, nothing more than the traveling hands of time. St. Genevieve can hold back the water, the saints don't bother with the tears. Welcome back to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. We're going to end this episode like we end every episode. Um, 
we are going to... Jaren, what are you listening to? So I'm listening to a band out of the uh, fertile lands of St. Louis, Missouri, um, and a band that is not Americana or doesn't sound like anything that's really coming from Missouri, yeah, in my opinion. The only two bands I can think of, or the only two acts I can think of out of, out of St. Louis, Missouri are, are Uncle Tupelo and, and uh, yeah, Nelly. Right. Yeah, Nelly. <laughs> there you go. So in between is a band called Foxing. And uh, this is their third album. The album is called uh, Near My God. And uh, it's dramatic, to say the least, but it's a, a really big sounding record. And, uh, you know, I think when you kind of mentioned that you'd been listening to them, for some reason I, I had in my head that this was going to be a kind of psych pop band or, or a, you know, sort of traditional, more indie guitar focused band. And really, the first thing that popped into my mind was, oh, TV on the radio or Peter Gabriel. Um, these guys are, are, you know, very orchestrated, very uh, vocal, layered. Um, you know, I think it's just, it actually harkens, I mean, really, TV on the radio is the, is the most modern band that I think they sound like. And, and you could almost say, like, are, are dangerously close to sounding like TV on the radio. The one catch, I would say, is that as much as I, I really enjoy TV on the radio and they have certain songs, they're the depth and, and sort of uh, layers of TV on the radio never lent itself to me to kind of catchy radio-ness or, or, or mainstream pop songs. pop songs, where these guys, I think, are, are pretty geared to break out. Yeah. yeah, and I can see this album being being pretty big. This is their third album. I think they came from sort of prog rock. Um, They're know, good players. Is that absolutely. And, and it's like TV on the radio. Yeah, and, and backgrounds. <laughs> and I think as the albums have progressed, they've really developed this sound. And uh, I highly recommend it. It's a it's a it's a great listen, and will likely end up on our best of list. Yeah, I really like year. it a lot. How about you, Wynn? What are you listening to? I am listening to uh, Mitski's new album, which I like a lot. Which is, um, you know, again another step in the in a in a further progression of, of great stuff from Mitski. Puberty Two was a great album, and now Be the Cowboy um, just continues the winning streak. Uh, every album adds a little bit more. Um, and rather than, you know, I mean, I, I, I would say her, the best comp for Mitski would be uh, St. Vincent. And um, St. Vincent, to me, is, is a phenomenal artist and such a seeker that sometimes she goes a little bit uh, far in a direction that, um, you know, I appreciate from uh, an intellectual standpoint, but, you know, can't always get into from a, a musical fan perspective. It's sort of like... I'm so glad somebody's experimenting in that way, but but it's not hitting me in the gut. Whereas Mitski um, is really writing, again, like you said about Foxing and, and TV on the radio, is writing songs that are more accessible but no less ambitious. Yeah, and, interesting. Yeah, so I would highly recommend the Mitski album. Also, uh, White Denim, a band that I've heard for years and sort of been like, I, that song's good. Every time I hear them, I'm like, oh, who is this? It's White Denim. They, they don't have a signature sound per se. And this continues uh, their sort of, uh, you know, it, it sounds like classic rock. And it is classic rock. I mean, that's the bedrock of, of, of their sound. But it, it again, they can sound like a dozen different classic rock bands. The thing is that they're good players and the singer is a great rock singer. Uh, from Austin, Texas. I believe this is like their eighth album. Yeah, they've been doing it for a little while now. And, um, you know, I'm not sure why they're not, why they don't rise above uh, in the same way that I was, couldn't figure out why White Reaper didn't rise above and maybe they will, still will. But White Denim, this album particularly, I think they just were like, fuck it and did like a, you know, it's 70s album, rock, rock record and it, and it kicks ass and it's really fun. 
Um, the other thing I'm going to uh, admit publicly is um, I went to the movies a while back and the Star is Born trailer played. And I'm excited. Again, one of the worst ideas I've ever seen on paper. Bradley Cooper directing Lady Gaga. And yet... Looks good. So fucking good. The trailer. The trailer. I mean, yeah. great trailer. Well, you know... I'm in the trailer gets I'm your the process of, wet. So. I'm in the process of cutting a trailer myself, so um, I know how hard it can be to, to, to hit those marks, and, and this is unreal. I think, it, it, honest to God, it... I'm going to I'm gonna have to Google it today, you or will. Venmo it, or whatever you do these days. All right, well, let's, let's put uh, a song on the uh, 3,472 10 best songs of all time. Five. Yeah. Um, are you ready? Uh, I am ready. So in my, uh, you know, sweetheart of the rodeo obsession and, and Graham Parsons with the anniversary of his death, I did go back to the birds, but I went back to the early birds. And the birds are a band that, you know, we, we've talked about on here before. We're all fans, but I hadn't really, like, listened to albums as much as just singles. And uh, got to say, like, Mr. Tambourine Man, the first album, the sing- or the song I'll Feel a Whole Lot Better has to go on this I mix. It's one of so my favorite good. songs ever. <laughs> it's so good. Um... All right, I'm going to uh, switch gears and, and get away from uh, Americana and go with one of the great American bands of all time. Uh, no hyperbole whatsoever, uh, and I couldn't believe that we don't have a song by them on here yet, and well-deserved. Yola Tango's Sugar Cube. Ooh. Hard choice, though. Like, yeah, there's so many good Yola Tango songs, but, but that is uh, a great rocker. Yeah. Anyway, thank you. Uh, fun yeah, talking, fun. Graham, and uh, we will talk to you all very soon. We'll be back. I'm Wyndham Lewis. On behalf of my brothers, Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis, thank you very much for listening to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Many thanks also to our heroic producer, Damian Kendall, and to Simon Doom for our epic intro music. Learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.